Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. From the Hyatt Regency, Valencia here in Santa Clarita, California, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your ear lover, your literary mansplater-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, coming to you with another tale of woe. And woe is right, because if you recall, in last week's episode... I said I was out here shooting Reno 911 for Quibi, and then one day at lunch, you know, people start looking at their phones. Oh, turns out Quibi has been canceled. Not the show, the entire network. So that's never happened to me before, where you're like making a TV show and they cancel the network. So there were some anxious hours there as we were going, well, what happens to us? And really them, not really so much us. I mean, I'm here, you know, playing a few parts scattered about, but it's their show. But what happens to us, and then I had to basically get naked except for a garbage bag diaper to shoot a scene as we were wondering all of this. We shot the scene, got word hours later that production would in fact continue. So I remain here and my garbage bag diapering was not for naught. But it does, of course, fit nicely into the pattern of this year, this topsy-turvy year in which nothing uh, feels stable and nothing seems like it's going to last beyond the next five minutes. So that's where we are. Me, you, the world. We're, as I record, just over a week away from Election Day. I don't know how that's going to go, but, you know... That's, that's what this season is about, horror. And it could, it could very well be a horror uh, by the end of election night. But we are on a path, a horror path of our own, with young Victor Frankenstein and his friends, Shervil and his almost sister. They are in a little... In in Geneva, Frankenstein has picked up Agrippa. He is reading it. He's learning about the mysticism of the olden days that Agrippa was studying, how to do all kinds of uh, spells and incantations and what have you. I mean, you know, he's he doesn't specify what he's reading in Agrippa, but his father's like, that's trash. And, you know, he's like, fuck you. And, of course, you know, his dad putting it down made him want to read it all the more. 
the cursory glance my father had taken of my volume by no means assured me that he was acquainted with its contents, and I continued to read with the greatest avidity. And that's where we ended last time. As I said, he is in the grip of Agrippa. Let us pick up. When I returned home, my first care was to procure the whole works of this author, and afterwards of Paracelsus and Albertus Magnus. And no doubt we have a footnote, of course we do, and we would be fools not to look at who Paracelsus and Albertus Magnus. Oh, Paracelsus, Paracelsus, P-A-R-A-C-E-L. S.U.S. Paracelsus, 1493-1541, real name Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. <laughs> I, mean, has, I mean, his middle name is literally Bombastus, so there's never been a more aptly named person. Von Vohen, Hohenheim, Swiss alchemist and physician who pioneered the treatment of certain diseases based on empirical observation, okay, also stated that human beings could be produced without mother and father by alchemical procedures, not so much. Albertus Magnus, 1193-1280, Dominican theologian and Aristotelian teacher of St. Thomas Aquinas, who thought magic essential to the pursuit of knowledge. He studied plant life at the human brain, the making of a brazen head that could answer questions. Hello. Probably some kind of automaton has been ascribed to him. So he made a fake head that could answer questions. So we see where this is going. Um, you can birth somebody without mother and father, uh, treatment of diseases, you can make fake heads. Young Victor Frankenstein is falling under the spell of ancient quacks. He is becoming unenlightened, shall we say. Our enlightened young man is falling out of favor with his contemporaries. I read and studied the wild fancies of these writers with delight. They appeared to me treasures known to few beside myself. I have described myself as always having been imbued with a fervent longing to penetrate the secrets of nature. In spite of the intense labor and wonderful discoveries of modern philosophers, I always came from my studies discontented and unsatisfied. Sir Isaac Newton is said to have avowed that he felt like a child picking up shells beside the great and unexplored ocean of truth. Those of his successors in each branch of natural philosophy with whom I was acquainted appeared even to my boy's apprehensions as tyros engaged in the same pursuit. He seems to be expressing... I mean, he just did, a dissatisfaction with the customary way of learning things by nibbling here, nibbling there, and gradually getting full. He's impatient with that. Young Victor Frankenstein is like, I want to swallow the entire ocean at once. How can I do that? Well, you pick up Agrippa. You pick up uh, the other guy. What's his name? You pick up uh, Albertus Magnus, who seemed to have all the answers. Look, is it safe to say that Frankenstein, young Victor Frankenstein, 
like so many of us trying to understand the world and frustrated by our inability to do so because the world is so vast and complicated, its gears tumbling ever so far and in ways and patterns that we cannot discern, decides instead to look for people who can explain the world in easier terms. Is Victor Frankenstein not therefore an early adopter of QAnon? I'm not saying he is but I'm certainly not saying he isn't. But it's the same kind of thinking, isn't it? It's just like, well, there's so much to learn, and it seems so unknowable. Can't somebody just explain to me that the Democrats are pedophiles running a, a sex ring out of a basement pizzeria, and they're evil, and Donald Trump is the white knight trying to save all of humanity from this? Like, you know, on its face, you go, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. But it but it makes things easier to understand, doesn't it? Well, you can't spin lead into gold. But no, 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 I can. I just have a secret formula here. And I'll, I'll do it in time. Oh, okay. Well, then go, great, great. I'll believe, I'll go with you on that. Well, no, dummy. Victor Frankenstein, I mean, the whole point of the Enlightenment is people are saying, yeah, you have to look at shit and examine it and figure it out, and it takes a little longer, rather than just saying, I declare it thus, rather than just flying by the seat of our pants, and you use reason to figure shit out. Reason is the whole point. If somebody says, we can make a baby in the 1700s and we don't need a mother or a father and all evidence points to the contrary, why are you going, oh, that's interesting, let's, let's, let's explore that a little bit further. I mean, the excuse we're going to give him is he's 13. The untaught peasant beheld the elements around him and was acquainted with their practical uses. The most learned philosopher knew little more. And philosopher here we can substitute for scientist. He had partially unveiled the face of nature, but her immortal lineaments were still a wonder and a mystery. He might dissect, anatomize, and give names, but not to speak of a final cause. Causes in their secondary and tertiary grades were utterly unknown to him. I had gazed upon the fortifications and impediments that seemed to keep human beings from entering the citadel of nature, and rashly and ignorantly I had repined. Who does this sound like to you? Because to me, it sounds like Jude, right? To me, it sounds like a young kid, 13 years old, trying to go off to university to understand the world in a way that was held at arm's length from him. He understood that the world could be comprehended or at least believed it could be, believed that the answers lied behind citadel walls if he could just access them. Frankenstein is similar. He's looking at these scientists around him and going, hey, they don't know shit. They barely know any more than the peasants. There's got to be a shortcut to this. Nature must offer a shortcut. And God damn it, if I'm not going to find it. But here were books. And here were men who had penetrated deeper and knew more. I took their word for all that they averred, and I became their disciple. It may appear strange that such should arise in the 18th century, but while I followed the routine of education in the schools of Geneva, 
I was, to a great degree, self-taught with regard to my favorite studies. My father was not scientific, and I was left to struggle with a child's blindness, added to a student's thirst for knowledge. Under the guidance of my new preceptors, I entered with the greatest diligence into the search of the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life, but the latter soon obtained my undivided attention. Wealth was an inferior object, but what glory would attend the discovery if I could banish disease from the human frame and render man invulnerable to any but a violent death. So now his aims become a bit clearer. He is looking, as we said earlier, uh, to create something for the good of mankind. And what he's looking to do here is, you know, he's 13 and he's thinking, well, what I'll do is I'll just eradicate all disease. I mean, perfectly reasonable. A perfectly reasonable aspiration for any seventh grader. I'll just get rid of disease. I'll just help people live forever. Now, it sounded absurd. You know, it sounds absurd in the 18th century. Does it sound any less absurd in the 21st? Because we've got billionaires doing the same thing. We've got billionaires by the handful devoting their lives to the same exact pursuit, the elixir of life. And you can say, well, you know, they've got CRISPR, and they've got uh, AI, and they've got telomeres, and they've got billions of dollars. So when I started having discussions about the desirability of defeating aging with biologists or other or non-biologists, people will say, oh, I wouldn't want to live that long. It'll be so boring. I will run out of things to do by the time I'm 80 or so. Well, look, if I have the choice between being bored at age 150 or getting Alzheimer's at age 80, I think I'm going to choose being bored. So we can take that seriously, right? Right? Can we? We've got life extension therapies. We can take that seriously, right? Well, life expectancy in the U.S. is going down. But that's because of opiates, Mike. Yeah, I know, but still, it's going down. Is life expectancy for billionaires going up? I don't know. You know, and I'm a sucker for this shit just like you. Like, I love reading about this stuff. Aubrey de Grey and Ray Kurzweil, who I mentioned in an earlier episode, and all these jokers, you know, trying to figure out how to solve death. I mean, the centuries may change, but the dreams remain the same. And why wouldn't they? You know, when you see people dying, and the fact of the matter is, we're all going to see a lot of people die in our lives unless we're the first one to die. When you see people dying, you go, oh, that sucks. Like, wouldn't it be better if they didn't die? Maybe somebody should work on that. Well, Victor Frankenstein, 13 years old, 7th grader, he's going to work on it. Nor were these my only visions. The raising of ghosts or devils was a promise liberally accorded by my favorite authors, the fulfillment of which I most eagerly sought so he's doing Ouija boards. And if my incantations were always unsuccessful, I attributed the failure rather to my own inexperience and mistake than to a want of skill or fidelity in my instructors. 
and thus for a time I was occupied by exploded systems, mingling like an unadept a thousand contradictory theories and floundering desperately in a very slough of multifarious knowledge, guided by an ardent imagination and childish reasoning, till an accident again changed the current of my ideas. Is this where Elizabeth going to die? I got the shivers. Is Elizabeth about to die? I guess we'll find out. When I was about 15 years old, we had retired to our house near Belle Reve when we witnessed a most violent and terrible thunderstorm. I'm noticing a pattern. I don't know if you're noticing the same pattern, but it appears that all the monumental moments in his life are accompanied by violent thunderstorms. There was, I mean, I can think of two, I guess. Whatever, I can think of two. Well, three, I guess, because I'm including the first one, I'm including uh, as Mary Shelley and her companions being waylaid at the inn because of a storm. And then there is the waylaid at the storm scene where Frankenstein and his friends uh, are waylaid. And now this one, when he was 15. We will return in just a jiffy on Obscure. Back to reading. It advanced from behind the mountains of Jura, and the thunder burst at once with frightful loudness from various quarters of the heavens. I remained, while the storm lasted, watching its progress with curiosity and delight. As I stood at the door, on a sudden I beheld a stream of fire issue from an old and beautiful oak which stood about twenty yards from our house, and so soon as the dazzling light vanished, the oak had disappeared, and nothing remained but a blasted stump. When we visited it the next morning, we found the tree shattered in a singular manner. It was not splintered by the shock, but entirely reduced to thin ribbons of wood. I never beheld anything so utterly destroyed. Before this, I was not unacquainted with the more obvious laws of electricity. On this occasion, a man of great research in natural philosophy was with us, and excited by this catastrophe, he entered on the explanation of a theory which he had formed on the subject of electricity and galvanism, which was at once new and astonishing to me. All that he said threw greatly into the shade Cornelius Agrippa, Albertus Magnus, and Paracelsus, the lords of my imagination. But by some fatality, the overthrow of these men disciplined me to pursue my accustomed studies. Okay, so it sounds like he's throwing out the garbage and bringing in the new. Fine. It seemed to me as if nothing would or ever could be known. All that had so long engaged my attention suddenly grew despicable. 
by one of those caprices of the mind which we are perhaps most subject to in early youth, I at once gave up my former occupations, set down natural history and all its progeny as a deformed and abortive creation. Oh, foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. Guys. Guys. Hey, everyone. There was ju- we just saw some foreshadowing. Oh, God. How do I tell everybody at the Hyatt? Do I just knock on the doors or do I run around the courtyard screaming? There's f- foreshadowing. All its progeny as deformed and abortive creation. And entertained the greatest disdain for a would-be science which could never even step within the threshold of real knowledge. In this mood of mind, I betook myself to the mathematics and the branches of study appertaining to that science as being built upon secure foundations and so worthy of my consideration. Thus, strangely, are our souls constructed, and by such slight ligaments are we bound to prosperity or ruin. When I look back, it seems to me as if this almost miraculous change of inclination and will was the immediate suggestion of the guardian angel of my life, the last effort made by the spirit of preservation to avert the storm that was even then hanging in the stars and ready to envelop me. Her victory was announced by an unusual tranquility and gladness of soul, which followed the relinquishing of my ancient and latterly tormenting studies. It was thus that I was to be taught to associate evil with their prosecution, happiness with their disregard. It was a strong effort of the spirit of good, but it was ineffectual. Destiny was too potent, and her immutable laws had decreed my utter and terrible destruction. Well, I'll say this for you, Mary Shelley. You know how to end a chapter. You know how to end a chapter. I mean, chapter one, we find out Elizabeth gonna die. Chapter two uh, continues along that theme. He is uh, pursuing a life of of uh, almost lasciviousness in the sciences. You know, just dabbling in the most grotesque alchemical theories and the raising of the dead and all this nonsensical uh, stuff. Then he sees the natural world literally explode in front of his eyes. And a visiting scholar who is with him explains electricity and galvanism to him. And it, in fact, galvanizes him. He's like, oh, what was I thinking? I'm going to throw away these these childish notions I had. I'm going to burn the Ouija board and I'm going to devote my life to the real shit right? The enlightened shit. I'm going to take back up mathematics. I'm going to study electricity. I'm going to make my contribution in the world. And immediately his soul was gladdened. He understood that he was moving from a dark path towards a light path. But destiny, my friends, destiny was simply too strong. And for all the interventions that goodness had thrown up in his pathway. 
they will eventually be ignored and he will return to Agrippa and the dark arts. We don't yet know why, but his origin story is coming ever more sharply into focus. He is turning into some kind of DC Comics villain. And it's a compelling story. You know, it's, it's, too, it's look, it's not even a short book, but it's already taking too long. Like, I just kind of want to get there. I just kind of want to get there. I don't need all the backstory. But Mary Shelley, you know how to end a chapter. One of the things that came up in book club, we had our first book club here at uh, Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. And it was a nicely attended event. You can join book club if you want. You you just have to upgrade your uh, Patreon membership to Hot Lady. And one of the things that came up that I didn't know was that that meeting between Shelley, Byron, and Shelley that precipitated the writing of Frankenstein. There were apparently two other people there. And it wasn't just a laze about. They weren't just doing jigsaw puzzles by the fire. They weren't just telling spooky ghost stories. There was also, uh, apparently, some laudanum, you know, some drugs, which are not dissimilar to heroin, and uh, apparently an orgy with the five of them. There was a, a pentagonal, pentagonal orgy. There were drugs. And then... The next day, Shelley and Byron are like, okay, we're going to take a hike. And Mary Shelley is probably like, yeah, I think I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm a little exhausted. I think I'm going to hang out here and write a classic novel. But I wonder, just from a kind of um, morality point of view, <gasps> excuse me, I wonder like what their own take on their own situation was. Like, did, like how did they think of themselves in the world? with their own libidinous adventures and their own decadence as they went out for this, you know, basically this party weekend. Like, what were they thinking? I mean, they were young, right? They were teenagers or young adults. And it's, I guess, no different than if a group of teenagers or young adults went out with a bunch of ecstasy and went to a rave and then, oh, I don't know, suddenly we're all fucking. Like, what happened? Your dick fell into me. Like, you could see that happening now, and you get back, and you're like, oh, Jesus, what a fucking weekend I had. Like, that all tracks. But the times were different. Maybe not that different. I don't think of this era as being particularly kind of unburdened by, by societal mores. Or was it all for show? Was this a common occurrence? I don't know. But it made me think of it when I was reading these last couple paragraphs, as Frankenstein talks about her victory was announced by an unusual tranquility and gladness of soul, which followed the relinquishing of my ancient and latterly tormenting stories. It was thus that I was to be taught to associate evil with their prosecution, happiness with their disregard. Is this also part of Mary Shelley's character itself? This, um, this split between kind of following her evil inclinations, and for the sake of this, we're going to say her evil inclinations are laudanum and orgies, and her more high-minded pursuits, which are clearly like poetry and literature. 
What are we to make of Mary Shelley in all of this, in her attitudes towards life? It's an interesting question, I think. Like, how much of this book is born out of whatever cleave she feels in her own character? How much of this horror versus beauty has to do with her own journey, her marriage, her drug use? You know, I don't know that the orgy's been confirmed, but let's just say there was an orgy. I mean, because how can we not? How can we not just enjoy the image of that Swiss orgy? You know, I think all this is interesting stuff. How much is like sexual liberation a kind of undercurrent of this book? I don't know. Maybe not very much, but I'm interested in the question. Well, look, chapter two is done. Uh, I'm too long in to start chapter three. So I guess I'll end it there with a slightly shorter episode than normal. But, you know, there's some kind of deep stuff rumbling under the surface. There's Frankenstein's story. But the, the larger question to me is, what does it say about Shelley's story? I mean, it's not even the larger question. It's, a side, it's, a, it's another question. What does it say about Shelley's story? Her own creation. Any 17-year-old is struggling to create themselves. As she's writing this, she's not much older than her character of Victor Frankenstein. 13 is very near to her in this moment. She's as close to 13 as she is to 21. So she's really caught right there between adulthood and adolescence. And she's, you know, hurtling towards adulthood and all that it entails. But she's looking back and writing a character who was in a similar position to her as her not so many years before. So I think that's interesting because that 13-year-old is being very tempted by the evils of the world, you know? Probably looking at a pack of Marlboros and going, I bet this tastes good. I'm going to go behind the 7-Eleven and smoke one. That's what Victor Frankenstein is doing. And, you know, I suspect Mary Shelley is now a -a pack-a-day smoker and probably buying a copy of Hustler at that same 7-Eleven. So it's progressed a little bit. Can we read Frankenstein? And I don't know. I'm just throwing shit out there. Can we read Frankenstein as a cautionary tale not for from Mary Shelley to the general public, but from Mary Shelley to herself. As if she's saying, careful, Mary girl, you might be going down a bad path. I don't know. I'm taking little details that may or may not be true from Mary Shelley's life, of which I know almost nothing, and creating a whole world from them. Still interesting to think about. All right. I've bloviated long enough. Um... We're under chapter three, you know? It's starting to get a little bit dark, which I like. We're starting to understand where Victor Frankenstein comes from. We're starting to understand where he's going, and we know his ultimate destination, which is utter ruin. Paradise may not yet be lost, but it is definitely fraying at the edges. Will paradise erupt in a conflagration? Find out on the next bone-chilling episode of Frankenstein. But until then, I wish you adieu. 
Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein was produced by myself, Michael Ian Black, Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, and Mary Shimkin. It was recorded in the wilds of Connecticut at the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. Theme music by Craig Wedren. If you would like to support this podcast, please join us at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. This is a podcast that does not receive any outside funding other than the funding that you yourself give it. So if you would like to support it, please do patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.